Good morning, gentlemen. Good to see you. Well, you know, I think Larry may have given us a new a new title for our Bible study here. Instead of Amen Bible Study, it'd be Bible Study for Dummies, right? <laughs> Starting with a dummy teacher. Hey, listen, it's, uh, it is amazing, isn't it, how complex the Bible can be, and yet when we look at it by the Holy Spirit, He simplifies it for us and gives us uh, things that we can use uh, in our hearts, in our speech, and in our uh, outward behavior with our hands and feet. And we're certainly going to see that today. If you'll turn back to the Sermon on the Mount that we're calling the Sermon on the Master's Ethic, how to live the true life. And Jesus comes, first of all, in this first sermon in Matthew, teaching us how disciples live. It makes a real difference to be a follower of Jesus Christ. Your life is going to change, and it's going to keep changing, and you should expect that. And the reason you should expect it is because Jesus is perfect, and we're far from it. We have a long way to go. And uh, the older you get and the more mature you get in the Christian life, the further you realize you are away from Jesus Christ. And yet what a joy and what, a, what an exciting sojourn to follow Him and to engage the things He wants us to engage in the way in which He wants us to do it, to fight our battles on His behalf with His weaponry. It's a very, very exciting life. And we know how it all ends up. We win in the end. So we're very excited to walk this life. But it is difficult. You know, when, you, when you're a teenager, your mom is concerned about a, a few key things. And she wants to be sure you keep your zipper up, and, and she wants to be sure you tell the truth. That's at least two of the things my mama cared about. And my daddy talked to me about the zipper part, and my mom talked to me about the speech. But what we're going to find out in the, in the master's ethic is that his standards for both of those things is a lot higher, a lot deeper uh, than your mama's concern even was. Because in most of our ethical training, we're trained in sort of the Greek way of thinking that you want to do this because of your honor. And it doesn't hurt that your parents want you to do it for their honor too, uh, because after all, you have their last name. But it's an issue of honor. And, uh, you know, we're, we're taught to live a certain way because of honor. Well, there's a certain truth and reality to that. But when we get to the Bible, we see that the ultimate motive is always the honor of God, the honor of Christ. We're actually living for someone else's glory and honor. And so the very motivation of the Christian ethic is radically different from the best that the world has produced through the classic ethicists centuries ago. Well, we'll, let's see how this plays out in the Sermon on the Mount on the issues of sex and speech, two things where uh, we all need a lot of help. Let's take a look at Matthew 5, verses 27 through 37. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Again, you've heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, 
or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. All right, let's look first of all at verses 27 uh, through 32 on the issue of sexuality. Uh, And this is what we learned, that your integrity in sexual matters is sacred. Your integrity in sexual matters is sacred. Jesus is teaching us that when you come to him, you you bring your sex life with you. So, really? <laughs> I was hoping to leave that behind. No, well, you need it first of all to bring it with you to get it forgiven and then to get it cleansed and to get your heart renewed to live a different life. And anytime we talk about um, sexual, sexual temptation or sexual sin or prayer life or whether you're loving your wife or not, we get every man in the room convicted. Listen, I know I've been through this a zillion times. When I was in seminary, if someone came and preached on prayer or on loving your wife, every seminarian was convicted. I mean, uh, I, I know how you feel. This is one of those times when we're looking at issues where we know we've all sinned and sometimes sinned it up real big. We've got to remember some things that this is what Jesus came in the world to do is to save sinners, to save us, to forgive all of our sins. Hallelujah. So if we're looking at an area of life where you feel like you've really screwed up, no pun intended, just remember this is an opportunity to trust the Lord Jesus Christ in ways that maybe you, you don't normally think of. Well, uh, your integrity in sexual matters is sacred. First of all, in verses 27 through 30, we want to look at your relationship with other women. Your integrity in your relationship with other women is sacred. The way that you look and think about women in general is a sacred issue. Remember, the devil does not know your thoughts. He's not omniscient. All he can do is observe, just like angels, all they can do is observe outward words, uh, outward uh, deeds, doesn't know your thoughts, but God knows your thoughts. That's the reason that your sexual life is sacred because every thought is sacred because He knows what your thoughts are and therefore you're thinking in the presence of God. You know what I'm saying? So every thought is with the idea that He is there with you, with your mind, and therefore out of honor for Him. Out of His glory, you want to be sure that your mind is thinking thoughts after Christ. So, uh, our relationships with other women are sacred. Now, notice, Jesus draws a contrast with the rabbis. Remember, in these six contrasts in, in Matthew chapter 5, He is illustrating what He said in Matthew five seventeen through 20 that He didn't come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. And what He's showing us is, that typical moralistic teachers do abolish the law. And the reason they abolish it is because they want to bring the law down so that you can keep it. And in order to do that, they have to pervert the law. Because as a sinner, you can't possibly fulfill the law. You're going to have to have forgiveness. You're going to have to have grace in order to walk with Christ because you cannot do it in your sinful state. But the moralist wants to bring it down to something you can do. And Jesus, in six occasions, he'll show how the real teaching of the Old Testament law, of the biblical law, is quite different than the rabbinical teaching of the law. And every religion tends to do this. It tends to bring things down to a level where we can perform it out of our own human will and then take, of course, pride in ourselves for having done so. But look 
uh, at this first contrast. He says, you have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. Okay, fine and good. This is what the rabbis taught. You shall not commit adultery. And the old way is merely outward. The old way is merely outward. So the moralistic approach, the religious, typical religious approach is to look at your outward behavior only. Most religions in the world are what we call ecto-religious. There are a few that are endo-religious. I would say evangelical Christianity is certainly endo-religious. I would say that Christianity, rightly understood, is endo-religious. It has to do with the heart. And most of what's going on in your religion is in the heart. Things flow out of your heart. Integrity means to have consistency. So uh, uh, a man who has integrity is a man who is the same from the inside out. That's the reason you can predict him because he is living out of a core and that core has convictions and he has then integrity. He has consistency from his inner convictions to his speech and his behavior. That's integrity. And your sexual life is to have integrity because it's to begin with your heart. But the rabbis taught... The main thing is keep your hands off. Don't touch. Don't misbehave outwardly. You know, I I may have mentioned to you uh, in years past, uh, on one occasion when I was touring Israel with a group, uh, it was several days before I sat uh, with our guide, uh, and uh, I just waited for my opportunity. Of course, this man was a very experienced Orthodox Jew who was showing us around, and uh, so at lunch one day, the only seat available was the one right across from him on a two-man table. So I sat across from him, and he said, and he said we were talking about various things. He said, well, don't you want to ask me? And I said, what? And he said, you know, about being a Christian. All of you preachers always do when you're on these tours. And, I, and he, he said, why hadn't you asked me yet? And I said, well, the reason is I knew that you'd been, at, you'd been asked that by every preacher on the tour. So I said, let me ask you a question. Why are you still not believing in Jesus Christ? You've been asked all these many times. You've had the gospel presented to you over and over again. And now I'm one more guy. So now tell me, what's the hang up? I said, is it the resurrection? You just can't believe in that? He said, oh, no, it's long before that. I said, well, is it his claims to deity? Is that what you find offensive? No, it's before that. I said, well, what is it? He said, it's his ethic. And he referred to the Sermon on the Mount. He actually referred to these very verses. And he said, it's ridiculous that he tell me that I can't even lust after a woman. You crazy? Every man lusts after a woman. Well, most men do. You know, 95% of them do. Lust after a woman. He said, this is an impossible ethic. It's outrageous. And he said, on the other hand, he takes a simple ethic like keeping the Sabbath and he breaks the Sabbath. So he's a Sabbath breaker and then he sets a standard that's impossible to perform. He said, the rabbis, and this is what he said. He said, the rabbis tell us we can look all we want. Just don't touch the merchandise. You can go window shopping all you want to. And you can dream about it all you want to. Just don't do it. He said, that's what the rabbis teach us. And I said, I know. That's what Jesus said the rabbis teach. And he said, it was absolutely wrong. And I said to him, you know what? This is what leads you to Jesus Christ. Christ will lead you to himself. Because he'll teach you the real meaning of Torah, the real meaning of Old Testament law. And then you realize this is impossible. 
and you are in despair. And then you'll flee back to Christ to say, Lord, forgive me for the depth of my sin. My very nature is contrary to what you're commanding. My heart is so wicked, I don't even think about cleansing my heart. And that's what makes the cross necessary. And that's what makes the cross then reasonable to you because you realize you need it. So this is the way most people think. They want to make their religion doable. And then it's convenient. Then it's helpful. But it doesn't condemn us in our flesh as Jesus says the law is meant to do. Because the law was meant to go to the heart. In verses 28 through 30 he teaches, but I say to you, the new way is from the heart. Now, you'll remember some of you older folks Back in 1976, when Jimmy Carter was running for president uh, uh, against uh, uh, Gerald Ford, that uh, it was uh, 1976 was called the Year of the Evangelical, and actually that year we had two Christians running for office, and uh, Jimmy Carter was outspoken about his uh, Southern Baptist faith, and at one point. Uh, he was interviewed, I believe it was by Playboy magazine, wasn't it? He was interviewed and asked whether he had ever committed adultery. And Jimmy said, well, no, not in the way that you probably mean it, but he said, I've committed adultery in my heart because that's what Jesus said lust is. Well, didn't we all have fun with that? And Playboy magazine was thrilled that he had said something so idiotic, something so naive. Uh, showing his gullibility, his his uh, uh, apparent uh, innocence, and so on, uh, and the press had a heyday with it. So you see, you see what the outside world thinks about this. It's silly. They they agree with Joseph, my Orthodox Jewish uh, Israeli guide. Uh, it's impossible. It's ridiculous. It's absurd to say that you can't look or lust. Jesus is saying that's exactly what I'm saying. And others may think it's silly, but God resides in your heart and in your mind. And we want to create a sacred space for Him. That's the reason that He sanctifies us, is to create a sacred space for Himself. And our hearts and minds is His temple. And if you look and see how the temple was dealt with in the Old Testament, you'll see that it was constructed and maintained with great care because that was the dwelling place of God. So we look at the new standard and say, yes, indeed, we embrace this. And gentlemen, we're not going to get anywhere in this Bible teaching unless you embrace what Jesus is saying. Yes, I know that we've all failed, but let's embrace what the standard is, and then we'll see what to do with the standard. Well, here's the standard, that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. That's the standard. Now, let's draw some conclusions, and I've written six of them here for us from this standard. First of all, we are all guilty of sexual sin. Romans 3.23 says we've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. That's it. There's not uh, a a perfect man in here. One time in church, the pastor said, does anybody here know a perfect person? And there was one guy in the back who raised his hand. The preacher called on him. I said, well, who is the person? He said, my wife's first husband. That's about the only perfect person you'll ever find. There ain't no such thing. 
we, we've all committed sexual sin. And so it doesn't make a whole lot of sense for us to be condemning somebody else. Uh, Paul says, be very careful when you make these kinds of judgments. We must be gentle with one another because it's all we've got is one fellow sinner trying to help another fellow sinner. And let's remember that. So some of you may, may be plagued with some thoughts about things that you've done in the past that just continue to plague you. Look, just sit there and wait until the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses your conscience because that's what the blood does. That blood was shed to remove the penalty for all of your sin, which means it was also shed to remove the self-condemnation. If you're not condemned by God, what business do you have condemning yourself? Are you in the condemning business? And if you're condemning yourself, you probably condemn everybody else too. So why don't you get started with yourself and let yourself free. And if you let yourself free, you'll probably be a little nicer to your wife and to the people you work with. You'll stop condemning them too. One reason you condemn them is because you condemn yourself. So apply the blood of Christ to your heart. Realize that if that blood was shed to take on the wrath of God for your sin on Jesus Christ, He's not going to charge twice for the same sin. He's just... And He's already charged for your sin. And it was paid for on Calvary's cross. And there's no more payment to be made. And therefore be done with the self-condemnation. And keep preaching to yourself. Actually, I don't mean to make this worse for you, but you're sinning by condemning yourself. Do you realize that? You're making this whole thing worse. You're supposed to receive the work of Jesus Christ and be grateful for it. And He commands you to receive it and be grateful for it. So get up off your self-pity party and rise up and thank Him for the freedom of the gospel. And then you're empowered to live the new life, not perfectly, but repentantly. And that's what repentance does. Repentance leads you to joy. Sorrow leads you to repentance. Repentance leads you to joy. That's the way it works. So you might want to rethink how you're dealing with yourself if you're stuck in self-condemnation for these sins. But let's be really clear about it. Everybody has sinned. Secondly, in Christ we are forgiven our sexual sins. Look, uh, leave your finger in Matthew chapter 5 and turn over to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. I want want you to see something uh, important here about sexual sin. This is on uh, page uh, 2198. Page 2198 in the ESV study Bible. And uh, Paul here is talking about uh, the importance of righteousness in verse 9. Do you not know, this is 1 Corinthians 6, 9, do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Okay, I guess that ends this Bible study. It's all over. We're cooked. It's over. But look at the next verse. And such were some of you, but you were washed You were sanctified. You were justified. That means you were made acceptable to God in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. So he says, yes, 
These folks who continue in these practices unrepentantly, all those practices, including gossip, slander, homosexual behavior, when they continue in that without repentance, those who are sexually immoral, who are fornicators and adulterers, who do not repent, they will never inherit the kingdom of heaven. But don't forget, such were some of you. Some of you were immersed in these things. And then he says, this is what the church is made up of. People who are repentant from those very lifestyles. And so we realize that in Christ, there is no sin that cannot be forgiven. I had a man call me uh, last week. And he said, I, I want to talk to you because I, I've been a Christian, I think, for a long time, but I just don't, I just can't be certain that I'm saved. And I'm really struggling with knowing for sure that God loves me. And I asked him about his life. And, and he's been going to church and he, he faithfully attends with his wife. And they've got two little kids that they're rearing in the faith. And finally I said to him, I said, look, uh, you're obviously born again. And you can't be born again unless your sins are forgiven. Paul makes that clear in Romans 6. It's actually in reverse. He says you can't have your sins forgiven if you're not born again. But the opposite is true too. You can't be born again without your sins forgiven because justification and regeneration go together. And so you, you can't possibly be in a repentant mode unless you, that's by the Spirit. And the Spirit is not going to come and give that to you unless Jesus has paid for your sins because the Spirit applies the work to Jesus Christ of Jesus Christ to His people. So there's a, there's a logic of this. And I said, you wouldn't even be concerned about this issue if you weren't born again, and you wouldn't be born again if your sins weren't forgiven. So I'm sorry, but you're stuck with it. And you've got yourself all tied in knots because of your obsessive-compulsive disorder. That's what it is. It, it, it's not because God's promises are not true or because there's not a clear and easy lower-shelf logic for you to understand and build your assurance upon it. Well, same here. Christ forgives all of our sins. When you come into Him, you really receive Him, and you offer your life to Him, you've really been a recipient of the new birth. You're forgiven for all of your sins. The worst sins that we commit, of course, are the sins of our old age. The sins after we've been Christians for 20 years. And you find yourself still doing these idiotic, stupid, foolish, destructive, dishonoring things in your mind, in your speech, and with your hands and your feet. And you say, could God ever forget such a knucklehead, forgive such a knucklehead like me? Yes. Those are the only people he came to forgive were people like you and me. We're all horrible sinners. And he, he died for us. And that's the reason he had to die. And if there, were, uh, if there were any question in our minds, gentlemen, Jesus Christ laid down his life as an unblemished lamb. There was no sin on him. There was no reason at all for him to die. There are a lot of reasons for you to die. There were no reasons for him to die. The only reason for him to die was your sins and mine. That's the reason he died. Otherwise, it would be, be the worst crime in the history of the universe that the perfect Son of God died on a cross. The only reason it makes sense is because he took our sins on him, all of them, as he said. Thirdly, notice our sexual practice reveals our theology. Now, we won't spend a lot of time on this, but in Romans chapter 1, when Paul is talking about uh, how the Greeks live, exchanging normal relationships, men and women, with relationships between men and men and women and women. And he talks about the corruption, including the sexual corruption in the culture. 
Here's why they do it. Because they've exchanged the glory of the immortal God for the glory of idols. And so you see their sexual practice is issuing out of their theology. And what is their theology? Their theology is there are multiple gods and they get jealous with each other and they're also fickle. And so you have to please all these different gods. And furthermore, those gods might be on your side today and they might be against you tomorrow. So you have to keep manipulating them with sacrifices and prayers. That's their gods. Paul says your God is not like that. He is one God. He is the only God. And He makes a faithful covenant with His people. And He is not fickle. He never changes His decree. And when He decrees to love you, you are His people. Now, He may punish the daylights out of you, but He'll never leave you nor forsake you. That's your God. He's faithful. And therefore, in your romantic relationships, in your sexual relationships, you must demonstrate the character of your God. The pagans are demonstrating the character of their gods. They're fickle. They have sex or relations with anybody they want to and then change their mind tomorrow. So their sex life makes perfect sense. They have sex with prostitutes in the temples. They have multiple wives. They do whatever they want because that's what their gods do. Your God is not like that. He picks one bride, Israel, the church. He picks one people and he's faithful to her all the way, even though she's faithless to him sometimes. And he says your marriages and your sexual life must be the same way. It's you enter into covenant and that's the reason you have sex organs, a sex brain and sexual practice is to demonstrate covenant life. That's what it's all about. And so when you're single and remaining abstinent, it's because you're giving honor to Christ and showing respect for the covenant of marriage, even though you're not in it. You may never be in the covenant of marriage, but your abstinence shows that you respect the covenant of marriage, and this is the very purpose for sexual practice in it, is to demonstrate the faithfulness of God to His people and His people's devotion to her Lord. That's what the purpose of marriage is. And so that's the reason that, that we learn here that our sexual practice reveals our theology. You see the same thing in the Old Testament. In Canaan, the Canaanites, the Amorites, the Ammonites, they did the same thing. They had temple prostitutes and part of your worship was to go to have sex with the prostitutes because you were honoring the fertility gods who were fickle. And so it was almost like a sacrament. And so the Canaanites, were they were practicing sex just like they practiced their worship. It was faithless. And when Israel went into Canaan, they were to remove those idolatrous temples and, and worship places and remove that uh, sexual practice. And they went in with monogamous sex in marriage only because God had married them. Same thing. Old Testament, New Testament shows us that our sexual commitments and our sexual practice and our sexual thoughts reflects our real theology. And that's the reason it's such a tragedy to look in the churches today and see just rampant non-Christian sexual practice. What that reveals is our theology, our real theology. It's coming out. You can see how weak we are. Okay, fourthly, sexual sin is intensely selfish. Now, for, to see this, turn with me, please, to 1 Thessalonians. Leave, you can leave a marker there in Matthew 5. We will come back. But in 1 Thessalonians 4, and this will be on page 2308, 2308, 1 Thessalonians 4. Look what Paul says when he talks about sanctification. He says in 1 Thessalonians 4, 3, 
For this is the will of God, your sanctification. Let's just stop there for a minute. Sometimes guys will really get all worked up about what God's will for them uh, is in their lives. Here's what it is. You want to know God's will for you? Your sanctification. You say, no, no, no. I mean where I should live and what job I should have and how many children I should have or whom I should marry or whether I should get engaged to this woman or or whether I should take a promotion in another city. I mean, that's what, I'm, that's what I want to know about the will of God. Well, let me tell you something. Right here is what matters. Here's the will of God for you, your sanctification. That's His will. That's His pleasure. And these other things, as important to us as they are, let me tell you something, it doesn't really matter. When Christ comes back, He's not going to say, you know what, I'd take you into heaven, but I had a woman for you and you picked the wrong one. Or I had the perfect job for you and you foolishly turned it down. I tried to lead you right into it, but you wouldn't go. Gentlemen, those things don't make any difference. If they did, they'd be in the book. They'd tell you exactly who to marry, exactly how to find, exactly the right job. Here's what matters. Your heart for Jesus Christ in everything you do. Augustine said it, love God and do what you want. Because if you're loving Him, what you want is to, to honor Him in every decision you make. So let's say that you take a job and it turns out later you would say, that was a dumb mistake. Or let's say that you chose a career path and you say, you know what, I wish I was back in college, back in graduate school, I'd choose another career path. Well, fine. But let me tell you something. As long as your choices right now and even your choices back then were with a view to seeking to seek to honor Christ. It doesn't matter if you made a mistake. In fact, there's no way really to make a mistake as long as you're seeking to honor Him in every decision. That's what matters. That's the ethics of that situation. Are you seeking the kingdom of God and His righteousness beyond all other things? And then you can leave your limited capacities to make good decisions with Him and with His providence and... He blesses, he blesses stupid decisions over and over again. He's blessed me so much in so many of my stupid decisions. It's amazing. You don't have to make perfect decisions in order to be blessed by Him. What you want to do, give Him your heart and give Him your best and seek His honor. And then you can leave the rest with Him. So here's His will for you, your sanctification. Now, when Paul starts to talk then about sanctification, where does he talk? Well, let's look here. He says in verse 3, that you abstain from sexual immorality. There you go. That's the first thing on the list with Paul. Wonder why. Must have been, must have been an amen Bible study he was talking to. That each one of you know how to keep your zipper up. Now he says, you're saying, where is that verse? I never heard that. Verse. Here's what he says. That each of one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust, like the Gentiles who do not know God. Now, let's stop there a minute. You see what he's saying? Your sexual practice reveals your theology. He says, don't practice sex just according to what your natural desires lead you to do. It's not falling in love. It's not loving someone just because your glands take you there. He said, that's the way the Gentiles do it. It simply is whatever their intuitions tell them to do, whatever they want to do, no constraints. Then you're free. That's the Gentile approach and, of course, the 21st century American approach. And he says, that's, that's just paganism. Don't do that. You have another God. They don't know God. So, so their sexual practice reveals it. Now, verse 6, 
that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter. There you go. What does Gentile sexuality do? It wrongs your neighbor. They call it love, and it is war. You know, when I was in college, what was it? Make love, not war. You know, don't want to go to Vietnam. Just want to make love. Here's the problem. It's not love. It's intense selfishness. So what we say is love is simply serving our own appetites. That's what the Bible is teaching. So I hope this helps you to realize. And, of course, you can do this in marriage too. We'll get to that in a moment. But in your sexual practice in marriage, oftentimes all you're doing is just hoping that she gets something out of this because you sure plan to. And each person is just thinking about themselves and their own sexual appetites and their own pleasures and their own fulfillment. And Jesus is teaching us something very important. Our whole sexual lives is in order to serve God and serve our neighbor. And you say, okay, I'm ready to serve my neighbor. Okay, zipper up. That's the way you do it. And zip your mind up and begin to think of that person as a person not as an object to satisfy your appetites. That's what's happening. When you lust after a woman, you put pornography on your screen and just scroll from one picture to another or one video to another. You're just objectifying that person and using them to satisfy your own selfish appetites. It has nothing to do with loving that person as a person. And I'll guarantee you, if they had been loved, they wouldn't be on your screen in the first place. The only reason they're there is that they've been abused and sometimes uh, drug addicted in order to get on your screen in the first place. So they've already been abused, and now you're going to abuse them again. You're going to use them as an object to satisfy your lust. And that's not the reason you were given uh, sexual appetites. Uh, it's for another reason. So, so sexual sin, we see here, is intensely selfish. Uh, and the problem with fornication that's just rampant and uh, the problem with homosexual uh, practice, both of these things, heterosexual practice and homosexual practice, they do the same thing. They, they abuse and objectify your neighbor. And all the homosexuals are asking for is the same privileges that heterosexuals have been exercising now for the past 50 years rampantly. Heterosexuals basically have sex with whomever they want to, whenever they want to, under whatever circumstances they want to, regardless of marriage. And that's all the homosexuals are asking for to have sex with whomever they want to, whenever they want to, regardless of marriage. So the answer for the church, which uh, and the more uh, Bible-believing your church is, the fewer homosexuals you probably have in your church. The the concern for Bible-believing church is let's deal with the heterosexual problem. That's the big disease in our country. AIDS is largely affecting homosexuals, but the biggest disease is with heterosexuals who have abandoned the standard. And so if you want your church or my church to be churches that are promoting righteousness and promoting the glory of Christ, let me tell you something. You'll dig in and begin to deal deal with the sexual dysfunctions and immorality in your church and begin to encourage one another to walk according to the standard that Jesus set because it reveals the theology of your church. The sexual practice of your church reveals what people actually believe. And so if you will deal with sexual practice, what you'll find out is when you get into the dysfunctions, you'll find out 
the problem really is people have not put their trust in Christ. They say they have, but they really haven't. And you'll have an opportunity to deal with people pastorally challenging not just their sexual practice, challenging their idolatry, challenging their hearts. So this is the one reason why it's incumbent upon all of us to deal with the sexual dysfunctions in all of our church, beginning with ourselves. So it is intensely selfish. And one of the outcomes of all of this dysfunction is that men are going into marriages at the age of 25 or 30. They've already largely had sexual practice with a number of women. They've been hooked on, uh, 70% of them have been hooked on pornography. And all of those things are intensely selfish. Now they're going to go into a marriage where the object of your sexual practice is to bring joy to your wife. And in case you haven't noticed, the female outlook on sexuality is entirely different, not entirely, but it's very different from the male view of sexuality. And males who have been trained to please themselves go into a marriage and they keep pleasing themselves and they never understand the sexual practice as a means of loving another person. It continues in marriage to be a means of bringing satisfaction to myself because you've been trained so poorly by your previous practice. So if that was your case and you're now married and you've been married for 20 years and you're saying, why didn't I get that speech uh, a long time ago, I don't know why you didn't get it. But you got it now, so what are you going to do with it? Go home to your wife and apologize. Just say, I've been intensely selfish. Now, look, I know how difficult it is. We have things called hormones. They've got them too. But we've got big-time hormones with testosterone. We have big appetites. I didn't say this was easy. But I am saying it's simple. You were given your, your brain that's sexually oriented, and you've been given your sex organs. You've been given a whole approach to sexuality to honor Christ and His covenant with the church and to serve another person, one other person. by You serve one other person in marriage by loving them and satisfying them. You serve everybody else by abstinence and everything that leads to abstinence, by showing proper boundaries and showing them respect as a person instead of an object of your lust. So sexual sin is intensely selfish. Fifthly, I think it is, sexual sin provokes God's judgment. And you see it here in 1 Thessalonians. Because the Lord, verse 6, is an avenger in all these things as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. Paul warned them over and over again. God judges these matters. There's a story of a Puritan woman, young lady. She was a maiden and a man came to her and wanted to have sex with her. And she said, okay. She said, and she pointed to the table uh, and there was a candle burning on the table. And she said, hold your finger in that candle for a minute. He said, what? She said, no, if we're going to have sex, first of all, hold your finger in that candle for one minute. He said, I'm not going to do that. My finger would burn off. It would be painful. She says, so you won't put your finger in the candle for a minute and you want me to burn in hell forever. She was maybe overstating the case. (laughs) But it seems that our sexual malpractice provokes the wrath of God. And when we look at nations and churches and families as well as individuals, I think you can see the evidence of it. God doesn't like it. When we take a gift that he gave us to use for a specific purpose and we take that gift and we use it to gratify ourselves, forgetting him, uh, it usually provokes his wrath. Uh, Then um, 
lastly on these points, uh, bullet points, sexual sin violates our calling. Once again, First Thessalonians, you'll see that, that we were called to live a holy life. And we're violating our very calling uh, when we exercise sex as we want to. You'll see in the ESV study Bible, pages 25, 47 through 50, there's an article on this. Now let's look at the solution. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. Okay. Well, some of you will say, well, you know, it really wasn't my eye. It was another member of my body that caused me to sin. All right, cut it off and throw it away. You know, uh, if you read Stott's background on this, he refers to Origen, one of the great early theologians from Alexandria, Egypt. And he really had a problem with lust, and Origen actually mutilated himself. Uh, and you say, there's, there's serious discipleship right there, you know. Um, and obviously that was not the right thing to do. Jesus is using hyperbole here. He's not saying go mutilate yourself. Here's what he's saying. This is not for part-timers. And this is not for people who want to take partial steps or just tinker with Christianity. No, this is all-out war. If you're going to fight this battle, especially in the generation he was living in, especially in the Roman world, where Paul traveled, where Paul, Paul traveled, there were prostitutes offering him sex every day of every uh, city he was in when he preached. Paul was facing enormous sexual temptations all the time, and he was a single man. Well, we face them too. So in this generation, if, if we think we're just going to kind of slide into this lifestyle, it is not going to work. You're going to go in with your fists up, and you're going to have a battle on your hands. Uh, now, what he teaches us in this solution, number one, sexual purity begins in the heart. We've already seen that in Matthew 5, 28. It begins in the heart. So, you, we must discipline our minds, realizing that Christ is an audience to our minds. So, just realize, okay, I, I sin over and over again. I have faults go through my mind. I let temptations gestate in there, and they turn into lusts. And I must get on my knees and ask for forgiveness. Ask forgiveness for your errant thoughts. And when you ask for forgiveness, also thank him for his forgiveness. And remember, you're not forgiven because you asked. You're forgiven because Jesus Christ died on the cross. You're only asking to connect with Christ intimately so that he becomes the source of your satisfaction and not your sex life. That's the real problem. You're looking for something other than Jesus Christ. And let me tell you something. If you think that Jesus Christ cannot satisfy you, you don't know him yet. So if you're finding that you just can't get a grip on your sexual temptation, there may be some psychological disorders where you need some help. But if you're in the bell curve of the normal range psychologically, the real task here is to realize that you've let some other thing, some other object, some other God come in and tell you that's the way you're going to be satisfied. And the only way you're really going to be satisfied is with Christ. So sexual purity begins in the heart. Cleanse the idols out. Secondly, sexual purity requires enormous discipline. Now, you'll find with Job, for example, in Job 31.1, he says, I've made a covenant with my eyes not, a, not to look lustfully at a woman. Wow. Job made a covenant with one of the members of his body. This is how you tear it out. Jesus says, if your eyes cause you to sin, gouge them out. Here's what Job Job's showing you how to do it. Make a covenant with your eyes. Eyes, I'll make a covenant with you. Let you stay in your sockets if you'll do this. <laughs> Don't look lustfully at a woman. Don't break the covenant with me. 
So you make a deal with the members of your body. And your eyes are very important. Men are very much aroused by what they see. So you've got to be extremely careful. Women are aroused more by what they hear. They have to be very careful not to listen to slick, smooth, gentle, sort of wooings. And you have to be careful not to look at pictures. It's just that simple. So you make a covenant with your eyes. You also notice in 1 Thessalonians 4, Paul says to control our bodies. So we have to control our hands. What do you touch? And then you'll find in, in Proverbs 5, 8, a very interesting verse. You can turn there if you want to, but let me read it to you. This is, of course, Solomon's advice to his, his own son. He's trying to teach his sons who are going to be kings how to live life. And he says, verse, five, uh, verse 8 in chapter 5, Keep your way far from her. That is the, the adulterer, the prostitute. Keep your way far from her and do not go near the door of her house. So gentlemen, tell your feet. You stay away from trouble. You get me? Tell your hands. You keep your hands off. You hear me? And you just talk to your eyes and say, keep your eyes off that stuff, will you? Because I'm having a hard enough time here in my brain without you guys getting me in trouble. So just have a little conversation with the members of your body. There might be one other member you want to talk to. I don't know. Uh, (laughs) Thirdly, sexual purity entails speech. And we have to be very careful what we say. And you'll pick that up in Ephesians chapter 5. We don't have time this morning. But Paul shows us how all of our speech must be wholesome. And we must stay away from things that drop our guard. And there are some great jokes. I used to tell my dad, please don't tell me those things. Number one, I can't forget them. And number two, I can't repeat them. I'm a preacher, so don't even tell me. Uh, but there are some even jokes or stories or things that we laugh at that just lower the guard. Be careful. Now, B, in your relationship with your wife, quickly, notice in verse 31, the old way is merely legal. It was, it was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. So what the rabbis did was take a provision in Deuteronomy 24, verse 1, which says if you're going to divorce your wife, give her a certificate of divorce for heaven's sakes so that she has proof that you divorced her, so that she has proof that she's free. That was a provision to protect women. And what did the rabbis do? Just turned it into convenience for the men. All you have to do is just give her a certificate and divorce her for whatever you want to. Jesus said you've perverted the Scriptures. He says, I say to you, verse 32, the new way is moral. I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife except on the ground of sexual immorality makes her commit adultery, and whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. And Jesus regularly takes us back to God's intention in Genesis chapter 2. And we'll see in Matthew 19, that's what he does. When they say to him, tell me, Jesus, can a man divorce a woman for whatever reason he wants? That's in Matthew 19. He says, let's go back to God's intent. What did he say? He gave woman to man, gave man to woman, that they might be one, that they might be married permanently. And uh, this is God's standard. That's what we want, to, we want to seek for. Now, the problem is, <laughs> if you've been married for more than five minutes, well, no, not five minutes, five days, you know it gets difficult. E.Y. Harburg wrote a little ditty one time, and he said, Love is a series of darlings and dearies, of honeys and sweeties and sugared entreaties, of moonings and swoonings and cooings and billings, all tempered, of course, by occasional killings. Uh, We know how marriage goes. 
But God's design for marriage is for permanence. Why? Because His covenant with us is unbreakable. It's just that simple. Remember, it's not about you. It's not about your compatibility or incompatibility. There's a book that's written whose title I would have used if I were to write a book on marriage. And here's the title. Incompatibility, Grounds for a Great Marriage. (laughs) My wife and I are naturally incompatible. We are. One time we had a psychologist come in and do some some work with our church staff. And this is in a previous church I served. And then he got the couples, staff couples, off to themselves, having given us some tests and just had a few questions for us. So he gets Alice and me in the room and he says, y'all doing all right? <laughs> I said, well, yeah, kind of. Why? Why do you ask? He said, well, on, you know, on the Myers-Briggs test, test, some of you have taken it. He said, I get couples every once in a while where they're opposite on two out of four of the categories and every once in a while three. But I think you're the first one I've ever had who are opposite in all four categories. So how you doing? I said, well, listen, honestly, here's how we're doing. What we're finding after, at that point it was 20 years of marriage, now it's been 40. What we're finding after 20 years of marriage is that when you're incompatible, it can be a gift because you have to work harder. It's not about whether you're compatible. It's not about whether you find this easy or not. It's about whether you are going to demonstrate the covenant that Christ has with His people. And let me tell you something about that covenant. It cost him. It was difficult for him. He had to work at it every day. And then eventually he died on a cross for it. And then, of course, he was infinitely rewarded for it. So will you be. And you have to wait for your day. For now, it's hard work. And it's not about you. It's about your being faithful to her and especially faithful to the Lord. So that's God's design. Notice that there are grounds for divorce. He says, except on the ground of sexual immorality. So when a spouse has committed adultery, then there are grounds for divorce. Uh, I know some Christian traditions don't believe there's ever a ground for divorce. Jesus, it seems, saying that there is. If he gives grounds for divorce, then that means you're not a second-class citizen when you divorce your spouse on those grounds. If it made you a second-class citizen, Christ wouldn't have allowed it because he doesn't have any second-class citizens in the church. So if you've been divorced on biblical grounds, then as painful as that is for you and others, you have warrant by Christ to do so on the grounds of adultery. There's another way of looking at this that you pick up in 1 Corinthians chapter 7 where Paul talks about the believing spouse being abandoned by an unbelieving spouse. And that provides what most Christians will say is a second provision for divorce if you've been irremediably abandoned. Now, as our confession of faith says, somebody else needs to make that judgment besides you. If you're the one who's allegedly been abandoned, don't make your own judgment in your own case. The reason is you're hurt and angry and you're disqualified from being objective. So you get your friends, or if you're in a healthy church, you get your elders to make that judgment for you. They declare that you've been officially, irremediably abandoned, and therefore you have a warrant to sue out for a divorce. So there are biblical grounds. But gentlemen, those are not the grounds for which we're having most of our divorces. Most of our divorces are on the grounds of incompatibility, unsatisfied needs. And this is where we need to find our way back to what Christ has ordered for us. God commands fulfillment of any lingering obligations because you can see, he says, if you do this, 
you make her commit adultery. Why did you make her commit adultery? Because she's a woman with no means of, of, of income in the first century. And the only way she can have income is to take up with a man. So in order for her to live, you're forcing her to commit adultery. That's, that's what the reason that language is there for men. And then he says, and then if you marry a woman who did the same thing, you're committing adultery. Look at the problems you all are causing by not being faithful to one another in your marriage, he is saying. So here's the way we look at it in terms of remarriage. If you have a biblically warranted divorce, the Bible seems to suggest then that you are free to remarry. In other words, he wouldn't say to you that you've got a warrant for divorce and then you can't remarry. Here's why. In the Old Testament, if your spouse commits adultery, the spouse is put to death. So you're free to remarry because she's not alive anymore. In the New Testament, of course, we don't put spouses to death who commit adultery. But it seems that the same principle carries forward that you treat that marriage as though dead. And Paul makes reference to, to uh, being free to remarry upon the death of your spouse in 1 Corinthians 7. So it seems as though if there's a legit, what we call a legitimate divorce, then there's, there, you're legitimately uh, uh, free to remarry. If, if you have more complex questions on that, feel free to email me. Just give me the circumstances that you're referring to, and I'll try to uh, show you how the Bible could be applied in that case. But you can see then that there's a much higher standard here for our performance than we normally live out. Now, let's look at this new way being moral. I want to make these three points, and then we're going to pick up with verbal integrity next time. Uh, we'll stop with verse 32, but let's, let's finish this. Three principles I'd like to mention to you in dealing with your spouses. First of all, practice His presence. Practice His presence. In everything that you do with your spouse, practice the presence of Jesus Christ. He's there. And at a time when you know your wife has been such a rascal, she doesn't deserve anything from you, well, let me just ask you a question. Does Jesus deserve anything from you? Has he been a rascal? Has he let you down? Has he been unfaithful to you? Well, of course not. You owe him everything, okay? You want to know what he's saying to you? If you say to him, Lord, thank you for dying on the cross for me. Thank you for living the perfect life for me and giving me the credit of your righteousness. Now, what would you like for me to do for you today? And he'll say to you, Go love that woman. But she's been unkind to me. Well, so how good were you to me? Yes, Lord. Go love that woman with the same grace with which he has loved you. Practice his presence. Secondly, serve your wife. The point is not whether you have a great marriage, gentlemen. This is a key. Please write this down. Your task is not to have a great marriage. Your task is to be a loving and faithful husband. Your task is not to have a great marriage, not even a good marriage. Because you can't control that. Here's what you can control. Being a loving and faithful husband, that's your homework. It's not having a good marriage because you can't control it. And all these guys are reading books about having to have a great marriage. And you know what conclusion we come up with? We're experts at this. Well, I'd have a great marriage if she would. And that's where it all ends. Drop those books on great marriage. Pick up a book on being a loving and faithful husband. Lastly, there's only one way you can do that. Look to the cross and the Spirit. All you have to do really to get this done is first of all commit yourself to the idea that your job in the presence of Christ is to serve your wife like He served you and then here's how you do it. Look at that cross and contemplate what He did for you. 
and then you get your, get up off your knees. Now go yell at your wife. Try that. After you've gazed at that cross and contemplated the love of Christ for you, you will be changed. It's the cross and it's the power of the Spirit. And you look to the Spirit. Don't look to yourself and your moral abilities. Forget it. You don't have them. Look to the Spirit and His moral abilities and say, Holy Spirit, come and quicken my heart out of gratitude for the cross and move me to be a messenger of the cross in giving gracious, undeserved love to my wife just as you gave me gracious, undeserved love. And that's what grace is. It's undeserved. So just as you received it, now you can give it. That's the way in which we love our wives. Let us pray. Father, thank You for sending Your Son to teach us about the real meaning of love and the real meaning of sex. And we pray that as we leave this room, single or married, old or young, You'll enable us, Lord, to give our minds and our bodies and our hearts back to You and that we may be the weapons for Your warfare in this world by loving others graciously as we have been loved. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.